0: Hi everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. On today's episode, you'll hear my conversation with Dr. Risa Hoffman. She is an infectious disease specialist who holds a master's degree from the Harvard School of Public Health, and she completed her adult infectious disease training at UCLA. She's remained there as a specialist, working closely with both the UCLA Program in Global Health and the Care Center. Dr. Hoffman's research focuses around optimizing care for HIV-infected women, both in the US and abroad. Today, we're going to talk about what it's like to be a doctor right now, her work with HIV patients, her concerns about COVID-19 from the perspective of infectious disease, and how the COVID crisis is bringing the medical community together today in ways we've never seen. She's going to offer us some hope and a healthy dose of reality, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Risa, thank you so much for taking the time to speak today. I, I do just have to express a supreme amount of gratitude for everyone listening at home. Obviously, these episodes come out on Tuesdays, but you've given me time on on a Sunday morning uh, when you are in the midst of practicing medicine and treating patients, and you know, looking at the landscape of a pandemic. And I, I just really want to thank you and thank you on behalf of everyone who's going to get to hear this conversation.
1: Thank you so much. And i um, really, you know, happy to be here and share my thoughts and, you know, want to say it's a huge team of, of healthcare workers out there all around the world and that it's really uh, incredible to be part of of this healthcare worker community during this time.
0: Mm. So I want to get into everything going on right now and and hear how healthcare workers are doing and and what you're seeing. But I would love just briefly to hear how you ended up becoming an infectious disease specialist. I, I I generally go through so much of people's sort of origin stories, but I also know that given the time we have today, we should focus on the science. I'm just curious, as you entered into a field of medicine and research, how did you pick infectious disease?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And it's, um, I think that for me, I was growing up and in school during the beginning of the HIV epidemic. And I think about that a lot because I wonder about kids who are, you know, maybe junior high age or in high school, um, or even younger who are going through this COVID uh, experience and how that might shape their future if they're inspired the way I was, you know, sort of inspired is the wrong word. I think I was seeing, you know, hearing on the news about this new infection that no one had ever heard of. Um, It was affecting hemophiliacs. So there were kids my age that were the, you know, Ryan White, the face of HIV, and nobody knew how it was transmitted. And so I sort of, that, that had a big influence on me, just how um, scary it was but also as I watched it evolve over you know years when I was in high school and then in college and I went to Stanford University and I had a really inspiring professor who taught a class called the impact of AIDS and this was probably maybe like early 1990s um, so now you can calculate my age Um, and he, this was um, really before the the advent of effective HIV therapy. Um, so people were mostly dying and there was a lot of stigma. And he approached the HIV epidemic from a really multidisciplinary lens and talked about the importance of, you know, all the different fields, not just science, you know, basic science and research, clinical medicine, but um, the social sciences, behavior, you know, legal legal protections. And I was very interested in this idea of, of fields and careers that were really required a multidisciplinary way of thinking about a problem. And I think HIV is such an interesting problem in that way because it, it, it requires really thinking about a disease and considering everything from the legal ramifications to behavior change to, you know... Obviously, the clinical part. So, really, that was probably the 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 reason I decided to go into infectious diseases because mostly um, at the time I was training, the pathway to become an HIV physician and researcher was through infectious diseases. I did also have a a fascination with with what we call bugs and drugs. So, the you know bacteria and antibiotics and viruses, and I always had a sort of yearning to travel and see the world and. Think about inequity is not just here in the US, but inequity around the world. And, you know, as I was progressing in my training, a- HIV became a big problem in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and so it all just continued to really inspire me towards, towards what I do now, which is, as a general infectious disease doctor, predominantly focus on HIV, clinical care and research, and with a big focus on Africa, actually. <laughs>
0: So what exactly for people listening at home who to your point might be thinking about specialties or career paths, what does an infectious disease specialist do? What is what is the work and how do you train to do it?
1: Uh well It's actually an incredibly diverse uh, career pathway, and maybe I can inspire some young people out there. Because if you can believe it, we're we're a very unpopular specialty, and we've had shortages of of people going into this field. Um, We're struggling to train infectious disease doctors, but really, um, infectious diseases is you know multiple different, I guess careers. You can approach it from a public health view. So you could potentially train and get a master's in public health or a PhD in public health or epidemiology, which is sort of the study of diseases at a population level. in in the clinical realm, it really is the study of, you know, kind of, as I said, um, you know, bugs and drugs. So we, we are responsible for, for knowing about all sorts of infections. Um, And I think people think you know, of things like Ebola and wearing the spacesuit, and, um, you know, outbreaks. And Hollywood has definitely contributed to that that view of infectious disease. Doctors are, are people that go around wearing spacesuits and taking care of, you know, hemorrhagic uh, viruses. But uh, a lot of what we do is we take care of patients in the hospital who have you know, complications of their underlying disease. So cancer patients get chemotherapy and then they get infections because their immune systems are weak and we come in and help with antibiotics for that. In the growing world of transplantation, where lots of people are actually getting organ transplants, like kidneys, hearts, lungs. Infection is a big reason why people um, have complications in transplants. So there's a whole field of infectious disease doctors who literally focus only on transplant patients and ensure, yeah, ensure that we, uh, this isn't my particular focus, but, you know, ensuring that you prevent infection, which is so critical, and then manage infections when they do occur. There's also sort of travel and tropical medicine. And so, you know, if you're going on a safari in Africa and you want to know what vaccines do I need, what antibiotics should I bring with me, you'd go to an infectious disease specialist, although that care is provided by other kinds of doctors. That's something we do. Or if you return from your safari and you have a fever and you don't know what's going on, you would come to an infectious disease specialist for, for care. Um, we also also do that <laughs> once. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> there you go. I was
0: not on safari, but I was... Uh... I was in Panama and I I brought home a pretty gnarly parasite and after 5 days I was like I don't have food poisoning I for sure have something else. Yeah. And I called my GP who then was like you need to go see an infectious disease specialist and I thought oh man here
1: we go. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. It was pretty pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, and so some people kind of call infectious disease doctors like the medical detectives. You know, I think it's a very um, intellectual kind of cerebral field. We don't do procedures so much as we really talk to people and we try to understand all the details of their stories and try to put together the pieces to think about, you know, is there an infection at all? Um, and if there is, you know, is it a parasite? Is it a virus? Is it a bacteria? What tests should we do? What potential treatments should we give? And another really, you can see I'm going on and on because it's such a broad field. It, the other really interesting component is something called sort of antibiotic stewardship. You know, we're having a real epidemic of resistant bacterial infections and overuse from overuse of antibiotics. So now um, there's a big push for having people from this field, infectious diseases, be heavily embedded in hospital leadership and focusing on policies that prevent antibiotic overuse. Um, And so that's another really important role that we have.
0: I've been reading uh, The Body by Bill Bryson. It's such an incredible book. I, I I was actually prepping before the shutdown for a now- paused job but to to play a surgeon and so I was getting to scrub in on surgeries and just like nerding out on all this incredible medical research and as I was looking for some of the things that I was being recommended to read by some of the doctors I was shadowing I went to the bookstore and I saw this book that says The Body an Operating Manual for Owners and I was like what is that and it is so good and so cool and I'm just so obsessed with the book. I've actually started going back through all my notes I've been making in the margins and making flashcards because I'm that much of a nerd. Wow. Um, Maybe and, you should go to medical school. I know. Honestly, like that was my plan. And then my, I don't know, life just took a left turn. I don't know what happened. But it's it's been so cool to to learn so much about every system in the body and also the history of research in those systems. And and he talks so much about, you know, what antibiotic medicine did for humanity, but also what this overuse is creating and how, because of the way the pharmaceutical industry works now, it's so cost prohibitive to make a new drug that we may we may run out of antibiotics that can treat disease in our lifetime and what will that mean for us going yeah. forward and it's really, really cool and scary. So I guess that's a really long-winded way of saying, please be in charge of um, how things are prescribed because I'm scared.
1: Yeah. No, it's, um, you know, we, we see patients who have really resistant bacteria and in rare cases, we actually run out of antibiotics and resort to, you know, trying different combinations and things, but it's a real issue. And, you know, I think that, we definitely need, you know, a lot of great minds and, and people coming into our field because we are certainly busier and busier all the time. The needs are greater and greater. And, um, you yeah, so I, I kind of do hope that this uh, COVID pandemic inspires some young people to think about a career in infectious diseases. And, you know, it lends itself really to, you can focus on taking care of patients if you like clinical medicine, you can do research you can do public health and focus at the population level. You know, it's, it's a really diverse, exciting field and um, can't think of a better time for people to be interested and in, in come, come join us.
0: So when, when we talk about what a broad scope working in infectious diseases has really, because to your point, there are so many verticals people can go into. You talk at the beginning of this about how your f- research has focused in the HIV sector and I know that in a little more detail your research focuses in optimizing care for HIV infected women can you talk us through a little bit more about that what what the sort of current landscape looks like and and why why that's the focus for you
1: yeah i mean i i um that's one of, of my areas of interest. And I, I think that, you know, I've always been interested in women's health. And, um, you know, I think when we take care of women, we're also taking care of their, their potential children or their, you know, the fetus or the newborn. Um, and my original training actually in medicine, I studied both adult medicine and pediatrics. And so thinking about women's health and in particular thinking about women's health during pregnancy um, and postpartum and that mother-infant kind of combination really appealed to me. And in HIV, that's such an important moment in time because HIV can be transmitted from a mother to a baby, either during pregnancy, at delivery, or during breastfeeding. And so in my career, one of the big questions that has been tackled by the community of HIV researchers has been how to prevent HIV transmission to infants and how to also think about keeping, you know, sometimes, you know, it's nice to have the training I have on adults and kids, because I think sometimes we focus more on on, on the baby because it is such a high impact, you know, moment in time when we want infants to do well, but also to be able to say, you know, what can we do for the woman's health during that time period and think about women. The woman's health beyond that time period. So, a lot of my work has been doing being part of a a large network called the Impact Network, which is a group of really brilliant, hardworking HIV researchers all over the world and work who work together to do design and carry out clinical trials to compare different strategies that have have over time ranged from strategies that were really focused on preventing infant transmission to strategies that um, have been focused more on the woman's health and her own HIV control and the drugs that are best for her. And, you know, when you treat um, a pregnant woman, the baby is potentially affected by the medications that you use. Um, And so we have to really think very carefully about what we use in pregnancy. And because of the fears of studying, you know, medicines in pregnancy, pregnant women are often excluded from clinical trials because people are just too nervous about, you know what might happen and in that process of excluding them that means we often don't understand the safety of a medication in pregnancy for 6 to 10 years after we know about it in someone that's not pregnant so the knowledge really lags behind for for pregnant women and pre- pregnant and breastfeeding women so i've i've focused a lot on that in my career because you know i think my med my training in medicine and pediatrics Helped me to be able to think about it broadly, and also because um, I love the community of researchers that do this work, and it feels also very high impact. And you know, when I first started out as a junior researcher, women were getting one medicine late in pregnancy to prevent transmission, kind of as a, a one time, a single dose of a drug called nivirapine, um, and infant transmission rates were, were really high. Um, and now we use three-drug therapy in pregnancy, and we've driven transmission down to less than 1%. Wow. And in, 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 even in really, you know, resource-limited settings in Africa, you know, less than 1% to 2% of women with HIV will have a baby born with HIV. So it's an incredible success story. And it's so exciting to be part of, you know, a scientific community that can, you know, I am one tiny, tiny little piece of this. Um, but it's like, you know it's, it's just very exciting to be part of it.
0: Mm. Well, and I imagine that that kind of an impact feels huge because to your point, this is a big global team. There are so many people who are dedicated and working in all of these spaces and places and, and to see numbers change like that, you know, in, in your career lifetime has got to be so cool.
1: Yeah, it, it really is. And we mostly work, you know, remotely. And it's amazing how technology has allowed us to to do what we're doing right now and, and to allow us to do this collaborative research where we might have 15 countries represented on a phone call, you know, and calls we do weekly or monthly with investigators from all over the world. And many of my colleagues in some cases I've never seen them in person. <laughs> Which is funny. We do have conferences. We used to have conferences pre-COVID, and that was, you know, that's always a fun time to 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 run into someone at a conference and see their name tag and be like, "Oh my gosh!" You know. Um, so I know you, yeah. We talk on the phone every week. We've never met in person. Yeah. So you know, I think research like this was much more difficult before the technology that we have today.
0: When you think about the capabilities of all of these researchers, all of these investigators to do global work, to have outcomes like we're seeing in the vertical of HIV. How do you see COVID through that lens? With everything that's happening right now, I'm, I'm just so curious because part of what I feel like I'm reading a lot of is that now there's this global race and what country is going to come out with the vaccine and who's going to own the patent and it it feels to me like we're really missing the mark on a global public health crisis that this strange competitive lens through which a lot of reporting is being done is kind of a disservice to humanity and and as an actual specialist I'm I'm just curious. What does it feel like for you in the midst of this? How how is your community responding?
1: Yeah, no, I think it is interesting um, because I see that news in that lens as well when I read, especially about the vaccine development. And I'm not a vaccine researcher, um, so I'm not on the inside of that. But I will say that the HIV research community has come together in a really incredible way, and I think because we've had decades of experience doing collaborative research across countries with teams and we have infrastructure, you know, lots of infrastructure in place that is being heavily leveraged to do covid research. Currently it's mostly domestic, but i think that there's lots of conversations about, you know, what, you know, what's to come for for other settings outside of the US. So in terms of, you know, treatment clinical trials. It's actually one of the HIV networks that is using their infrastructure to implement multi-site treatment clinical trials for outpatients. Um, And that's, you know, happening right now. And it's happening on timelines that I think were unimaginable to us uh, three months ago. So normally when you, when you think of proposing a, a clinical trial, you know, it's uh, many many months of developing a protocol, and many many months of that being reviewed, and many more months of all the appropriate regulatory people and funders evaluating it. And these COVID trials really um, have come to fruition in you know as, as little as you know three you know three weeks to a two to three weeks to a, a protocol, and another two to three weeks to getting to the point of opening a study and it's record time and I think that comes from incredible teamwork. And so I see from where I sit a really positive view of how infectious disease physicians and the networks, research networks that have existed for HIV are being leveraged to to do COVID work. And you know, we're really at the beginning of this and I think that will grow and strengthen over time. And I try to think about the vaccine situation. I, I think certainly <laughs> what you said is true. And there's kind of this race and there's a lot of money at stake. But at the same time, I don't know ever, you know, in my experience, a time in history where, you know, everyone around the world was trying so hard at the same time to come up with a vaccine. So I see that as a positive. You know, we have... Incredible talent all over the world, and everyone 's putting their mind to this and working twenty four seven to find something that will work and you know I, I hope that when the time comes and we have an effective vaccine that you know leadership will come together and we'll find ways to be able to you know bring that vaccine to scale and not just for people in wealthy countries and not just for limited groups so i 'm trying to see the positive in in, in that that it 's a global race but it's an incredible investment of people all over the world at the same time. And maybe that's going to get us to a vaccine faster than we've ever gotten there for any other, you know, disease in history.
0: And that would be so incredible. And, and yeah, to your point, maybe, maybe even having conversations like this one about what it would look like to have the globe put its brain power into one, one problem, you know, solving for this, coming up with a vaccine, maybe it's also us as a constituency being armed with information that you're offering, which is to then say to our lawmakers, hey, we all want to make sure as the people who vote and and who, you know, are the reason that you guys have these jobs, we want the U.S. to pressure the global scientific community to say, let's make this, you know, accessible or free or whatever, however that happens as it comes. I, I was just sort of struck when you were saying that about the fact that even bringing that conversation into our awareness as an audience could be really special because it then helps us, you know, advocate. It helps us know what to say about what matters to us about our participation in, in public health.
1: Yeah. And, and hopefully I think it's, it's certainly been in a lot of the like lay literature and the news that I've seen just that it's it's one thing to get to that effective vaccine and that's a challenge, but it's a whole other challenge to scale that up. And, you know, the vials, the syringes, the, the, all of the components you need in place. And so I think that awareness is very much out there that, and hopefully, you know, we're all people are thinking ahead about how to simultaneously sort of think about building the infrastructure to not only, you know, Have the vaccine that's effective, but distribute it and be able to give it. Yeah. So I I think it's in the language. And I do think the more people understand that that's a potential barrier, it can be a voice for, you know, trying to make sure that happens and hoping that we have leadership that can help us get where we need to be.
0: Right. I hope you guys are enjoying today's conversation. I just want to give a big round of thanks to all of our sponsors during this time. Obviously, things are up in the air and weird and scary, and so many people are trying to figure out what this means for their work and for their careers. And I'm really grateful that our sponsors are sticking with us right now so we can continue to bring content to you. And I'm so grateful to all of you for listening because this is how we support them and the people who work at their companies. So enjoy. I don't know about all of you, but I feel like keeping up with house stuff, dishes and laundry and everything during this quarantine has just multiplied and becoming super acquainted with how to keep my house and my stuff clean has made me incredibly grateful for one of my favorite sponsors on this podcast, Rothy's. They are super stylish, sustainably made shoes and bags now too that are carefully crafted with eco-friendly materials like repurposed plastic water bottles and repurposed marine plastic. And I'm so grateful for my Rothy's right now because they're fully machine washable. Every time they need a refresh, you can toss them in the washing machine and mine have been going in there quite a bit lately. Not only Are Rothy's easy to keep clean? I love that they prioritize sustainability every step of the way. They own and operate their own manufacturing workshop. They ship directly in their shoebox so there's no unnecessary packaging. And as I mentioned, they're knit from 100% recycled materials. I have a hunch you'll love Rothy's as much as I do. And you can check out all the amazing shoes and bags they have available right now at rothys.com slash sophia. That's rothys.com, R-O-T-H-Y-S, dot com slash Sophia. I don't know about all of you, but what's going on today with politics and pandemics and all sorts of other drama that is often reserved for television shows but seems to be happening in life? Definitely weighing on my sleep, y'all. I used to have a tough time sleeping in college because the mattresses were terrible, or when I'm traveling because sometimes I wind up sleeping in a hotel with a bad bed. But at home, I want to sleep well. That's why I'm super excited to welcome Helix as a sponsor on this podcast. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2019 and 2020 by both GQ and Wired Magazine. Helix has a sleep quiz. It takes two minutes to complete, and it matches your body type and your sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Whether you like a mattress that's really soft or firmer, if you sleep on your side or your back or your stomach, if you sleep hot, whatever your personal stuff is with Helix, there is a specific mattress for each and everyone's unique taste. You can go to helix.com WIP take their two-minute sleep quiz and they will match you to a customized mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but trust me, you'll love it. Helix is offering up to $200 off of all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash W-I-P. I got my pillows from Helix and now I've put them on every bed in my house, which makes it sound like I have a lot of beds. I only have two, but still, you know what I'm saying. I liked them so much. I wanted them to be in my guest room. They're freaking amazing. Visit Helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash W-I-P for $200 off your order today. It's obviously so easy to look forward and and try to figure out when we're going to have some solutions, when we might have a vaccine, what life is going to look like going forward. But I'm actually very curious just from your perspective with your education and the work that you do, what was it like for you at the beginning of this? You know, when did you in your community first become aware of corona and, and what were your Initial concerns.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's always um, it's funny looking back. I um, I remember I remember hearing about it on January twentieth, um, and I, re- I remember kind of the moment I heard about the the first case we had in the U.S. and. Having this sort of, you know, never having lived through an actual pandemic like this myself, and and having always in the past seen really strong leadership from the Centers for Disease Control and, you know, other other bodies that have led pandemic response because we've had other outbreaks, you know, and in my own career we faced um, the the MERS virus, which is the Middle East kind of version of this, and the SARS virus. I think I had what now I see as a false sense of security, that we would have really strong leadership, that we would be implementing testing and screening very aggressively, and that we kind of wouldn't end up with a huge problem. I mean, that's, I'm talking late January, you know. And then I think as February went on and I started to see this thing taking off around the world and not seeing a whole lot of action with testing and starting to see problems with testing access, um, started to get really, really nervous about what was to come, but also felt you know sort of um wasn't you know felt helpless in a way that you know people you could look at me and think like how is that possible but you know it's just i didn't really know what I could do personally and we we were all talking about it in our group and my colleagues and my friends, but with a sort of shoulder shrug like you know it felt like there was nothing we could do. We have no control over testing access at that point, availability of test kits and being able to implement testing even in our own, you know, hospital or community. And then, you know, the sort of second week in March when things really started to explode was probably one of, you know, one of the worst weeks of my life, quite honestly, where, you know, it was... I just felt literally physically sick as I was facing, trying to help my own, you know, hospital and health system come up with sort of response plan and and work with my division colleagues in kind of coming up with teams, who's going to address testing, who's going to address treatment guidelines, who's going to address surge capacity, how, you know, how are we going to you know, let's make a schedule four layers deep of people who are going to be able to come in to help. And, you know, we're seeing what's going on in New York at that point and thinking like, is this coming to us here in LA? And so it was, and and I know many of my my friends who are colleagues who work in um, the intensive care unit or hospitalist medicine, a lot of those who end up being the kind of front line of caring for patients, we're all kind of going through the same thing and texting and talking to one another, you know, two in the morning, like just surreal. Um, and very scary. And I think, obviously, I feel very lucky to work where I work with incredible colleagues and really good resources and brilliant people. And I think we, in a very short time, put together an incredible sort of response within our own system. And everyone rose to the challenge and people stepped up to volunteer for you know every little job that we needed help with. And so, but that whole kind of, you know, latter part of March was living with the fear of that surge and what that would mean for us, you know, as healthcare workers and worrying about my loved ones, you know, and, you know, just a tremendous amount of anxiety um, that everyone had. I know everyone had it. And so it was just, you know, mine was more focused on being on the healthcare worker side of that and, you know, worrying a lot about, you know, as you saw stories coming out of New York and other places and China, all the healthcare workers who were infected and died and thinking, is this coming to us? Are we going to see this in our own, you know, in, in our colleagues? And I think everyone had that. No one was really, maybe overly talking about that part, but that was certainly something that kept me up at night. And, uh, you know, now in retrospect, I think we did so many things so well, and we know that good PPE protects healthcare workers. And you know, we've we've learned so much that those fears and anxieties are are so so much improved for me, and I I feel really good about where we're at. And we we didn't really have that surge that overwhelmed our capacity, you know. Thank goodness. And you know, now it's shifted more to I think what everyone is struggling with, which is what happens now and you know what is it going to look like and when can i go out to dinner with my friends and when can i play tennis again and you know i have those same sort of questions and maybe i come to those questions with a little bit more knowledge but i really don't know you might ask me the answer to those questions and i'm going to say i don't know but yeah
0: i'm curious in terms of in terms of the kind of technical observation of a virus like this I-, I wonder if you can speak to why it's so dangerous one of one of the things that I wondered about this, you know similarly to you i I grew up in california i was I was in elementary school when the AIDS crisis hit my my dad is a creative. We lost a huge huge percentage of our community and our family friends and it was a really terrifying time and and one of the things that i've been aware of is that part of what made hiv and aids so tough to tackle is that it's it's a virus that mutates a lot. and my concern kind of, you know, seeing the tsunami of this pandemic coming, tracking data, you know, through january and february was is the coronavirus is covid-19 going to start mutating what what are what's going to happen here you know how quickly is this thing going to change and what i'm reading is that it isn't really it 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 seems to be a stable target for researchers to try to come up with a treatment but i'm also not an expert so having you here makes me want to ask you did you also have those concerns? Are you guys in the world of infectious diseases feeling more confident uh, that that this will remain a stable target with covid? you know what what are we looking at with the technical part of it?
1: yeah i mean i um yeah I'm not a virologist, but obviously i am I do have some Understanding and knowledge of this and I think that hiv is a really different kind of virus and is incredibly difficult to tackle in terms of a vaccine because uh, It has a very high uh, Mutation rate. There's multiple different sort of genetic variants of it around the world And we can't figure out what's called like the correlate of immunity like what is the what is the thing your body produces that controls hiv? and so, the sort of HIV vaccine and cure research has really struggled to, to come up with strategies, although there's incredible progress there that we can cover on a different podcast. Um, but, um, or I can refer you to really um, amazing uh, HIV researchers who are looking at this. But yeah, the stability of this virus, coronavirus, is, 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 is it's, when you hear about you know it's mutated, it's mutating, it's still very much the same virus. The mutations are are very minor differences, and all viruses actually make mistakes when they replicate, and that's kind of a known thing that happens and sometimes when they make mistakes during replication, they become um, what's called less fit and less good at at causing disease and making people sick and you know sometimes those less fit viruses are then are then better at being transmitted to other people, and that you know the viruses that they are smart in the sense that um, mutations that are sort of successful help them continue to propagate in individuals and so you know there are really interesting and important things about the viral mutations that occur, but in general, you know this coronavirus seems to be quite stable. Um, there was big news this week about this mutation in the spike protein and some preprint articles, meaning they hadn't been peer reviewed yet, that said that this, this version is more uh, infectious, being a, meaning it's being transmitted more readily and also has a higher fatality rate. And I thought you were going to ask me about that one in particular. So there's, there's an article circulating and a lot of buzz about that. But I think the most important thing is that there's a lot of research that's coming out that hasn't been reviewed in the way that it should be. And that is looking at, you know, is not necessarily looking at data that's been controlled for all the things that confuse it. And so it causes a lot of concern. I think when, when you see front page news about a mutation and news like that, and I think overall, um, it's it's not clear that any of that is true and that I do think that vaccine development will be successful for this virus. And I do think that we'll be able to to find a vaccine that will be effective, whether it's going to be, you know, the duration of effectiveness, whether the vaccine might have to be adjusted over time. Um, I guess all those things, you know, we don't know the answers to them, but this is definitely not HIV and the genetic variability from virus, you know, between the europe virus the new york virus you know they they're all really quite similar the differences are incredibly small so i guess it's a really long-winded way of saying i hey, i do think that vaccine development will be successful and i don't think this virus is mutating in a way that is going to result in drastic changes in the way it's acting around the world in any in any really rapid time frame
0: that's a relief certainly because obviously the the virus is scary. And, and, you know, we were, at the beginning of this, given so much misleading information by the people who are supposed to kind of take the lead on public health. And, you know, COVID-19 was being compared to the flu, which it obviously is not. You know, mortality rates dependent on um, infection rates in different countries have, we've seen between anywhere from 3.4% to 7.4%. That, you know, that's a lot of people dying. I, I read a statistic last week that said one in 500 people in New York died. Like, just one in 500 people died from this. And I I guess, obviously, many of us share, and I imagine everyone in the healthcare community shares the frustration over the defunding of the pandemic response team, funding being cut to the CDC to your point earlier a, a lack of leadership there in in the sort of everyday experience of the public do you think that part of the reason that that this has spread in the way that it has is because we haven't had good leadership if if you're comfortable answering that question i obviously you know
1: <laughs> yeah yeah no i mean um i i do i think we you know i've always in in We've never faced anything quite like this, but I've always really relied on um and felt like, you know, the CDC and our leadership around these types of things when they've come up has been strong and had faith in that response. And I, I think that, you know, also from what I've read, um, and it's hard to know for sure, but there were a lot of people signaling alarms to the to the White House and to the government very early on and those were not heated. And I think that, I don't know that we could have prevented a large, you know, outbreak in a large number of cases, but I think if we'd had a much more aggressive testing strategy, we could have averted, you know, this extreme case that we're in. You know, I I think that it, it just, even in the moment felt to me confusing. Why are we still only testing people if they're coming from China and, you know, at a time when we knew the virus was likely circulating in other parts of the world. And uh, why is it so hard to get a test? You know, it it was, you know, for a long part of the beginning of this, actually up until early March, you know, you couldn't get a test unless you did it through um, the county. Even as infectious disease doctors, we had... To work with them, and it wasn't their fault. It was the, this central federal government approach had been delayed in getting the test out, and there were, you know, shortages of different things. It just it all felt very haphazard and disorganized. And I don't know if we could have averted, a, a, you know, a major problem. But I have to think that if we had been much more aggressive with testing and contact tracing and quarantining people we wouldn't be in the situation we're in now with the number of infections and deaths particularly in in some of the hardest hit places like the northeast and here in california where we've had you know quite a number of cases too so yeah it's 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 you know i don't want to be it's like hindsight is 2020 and so I have to acknowledge that like, that's not always fair, you know, to say, uh, you know, if I had been in charge of, of the response, what would I have done? But I would like to think I would have been really worried about this and would have been aggressively pushing testing out and and consulting with people and experts. There's so many actually incredible infectious disease leaders and experts in, you know, in at the NIH and the CDC and the government and, we didn't hear their voices for the longest time, you know. And I think the way in which we've heard their their voices, like uh, Tony Fauci and Debbie Burks is very much in a controlled, you know, manner. Where you, you know, I feel like I listen to them talk, and I want to just be able to say, well, what do you really, what do you really think, Dr. Fauci? So it's tough.
0: Obviously, the lack of testing is a huge issue. But to your point, we are where we are today, are, are there reliable tests yet? Everyone's talking about antibody tests and antigen tests and where you can get them and who can get them and what the accessibility looks like. And And we are obviously finding that, you know, our our low-income communities, our communities of color are harder hit because there has been a real lack of support in those communities. What, what, what can we look to is is there reliable testing information that we can trust?
1: Yeah, no, I think we're in a pretty good place with testing. So there's different types of tests. So the test we use, if we think you're, you know, we're trying to actively exclude disease right now, and we're generally doing this for symptomatic people, although expanding a little bit to asymptomatic high-risk people, like healthcare workers or close contacts. That's um, a PCR test, so direct tests for the virus. And those are the nasal swabs. And, you know, those are accurate, good tests. And there's many, many of them out there. And, you know, most counties have, you know, Scaled, increase the amount of test availability. It's hard for me to. I can comment mostly on LA County since that's where I live. That particularly in the last few weeks, they have an online, you know, uh, way to sign up to be tested. And I've had a few people do that, and it's been successful. Um, they've been able to get the... There's a little bit of a wait. Um, they wait three to four days before get being able to get the test. And obviously, like you know, a private hospital or a big academic hospital is going to be more efficient than that but the tests are accurate and they're increasingly available. And that's our best, you know, currently kind of our best test for um, identifying people who are actively infected.
0: When, when we hear about some people getting false positives or false negatives, why, why is that happening? What does that mean?
1: Yeah. So, so for the PCR test, uh, the big concern has been false negatives. So you you actually have COVID, you get the nasal swab and it comes back negative. And there's different reasons why that can happen. Um, you know, no test is 100%. Test you know depends on the stage of disease you're at. If you're maybe you know very late in disease, sometimes those nasal swabs could be negative. But you're you know if you have a lung sample, that could be positive you know, sometimes the sample wasn't collected well, so it's not a good sample. And then different labs, depending on the test they use, you know, are going to, could have just a very low probability of getting a false negative. So our, our, our counseling is basically, if you have symptoms, even if you have a negative test, you should act as if you have COVID and you should isolate and, you know, monitor. So, you know, we are, assuming that if someone is clinically sick with a syndrome that could be COVID, they should assume they have it regardless of the test result because so we don't want to miss that.
0: And when we're talking about symptoms, you know, as you said at the beginning, we were really only testing very symptomatic people, testings being expanded to people who are asymptomatic. Why does this virus present so differently in people who have it? Because, you know there's a lot of reporting out there some people are just losing their sense of taste or smell some people have horrific side effects some you know there's there is a mortality rate there are people who have been released from hospitals and and doctors are saying they have permanent lung damage you know what why why does it show up so differently in different people
1: i mean we actually don't know the answer to that question but we suspect that you know, genetics probably has a lot to do with it. And that's something that's being studied. And then obviously, you know, you're more likely to have more severe disease, if you have older or have comorbidities, like high blood pressure, diabetes, chronic lung disease, you know, so But, you know, you know, sometimes you could take two young, healthy people and one of them has loss of smell and one of them, you know, is in the intensive care unit with lung damage. And we don't know why that one person had almost no symptoms and the other, you know, basically almost dies in the ICU. So I think that's something that's an active area of study and, um, you know. Is more likely to be related to the genetics of people, maybe related to the type of exposure. There's some theory that if you have a really like intense exposure, that a lot of virus, you know, for example, you know, the ophthalmologist in China who died. Like, if you're an ophthalmologist and you're in someone's face and they're you know coughing or sneezing, you have a huge kind of viral viral load thrown at you. That that might lead to more severe disease. So you know, that's one of the tough things is you know counseling people. It, you know, I think young, healthy people do have a sense that they're maybe less likely to be affected or less likely to get severely ill. But, you know, while that's true, it doesn't mean it can't happen. You know, and and I think that that's hard for people to, you know, on the one hand, people get very nervous about that. On the other hand, I think some, some people still feel a bit invincible. And I think that we've been trying to get the message out that you know, young, healthy people can still get really sick and we need, we need the young, healthy population to help us to prevent spread to other people and know that they're also protecting themselves when they stay at home and follow, you know, kind of the policies about sheltering in place.
0: Sheltering in place, wearing masks. I, I'm curious about the, at least here in Los Angeles, you know, and in California, we have pretty rigorous protocols. Um, thanks to the mayor and and to the governor about masks and a lot of people it's crazy to me that we've seen people protesting having to wear masks in public I, I just I can't fathom it a mask not only protects you but also allows you to protect other people from yourself essentially can can you speak to why masks work and 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 perhaps Give us some specifics uh, as to what types, because obviously we saw such a shortage of PPE. A lot of us had to get out there and remind people, you know, if, unless you're a healthcare worker, like don't buy N95s. Don't, don't do that. What kinds of masks are we meant to be wearing? Is, is there kind of a rule as to what's effective?
1: Yeah. So I think this has been very confusing and kind of controversial, the whole mask you know, masking and the benefits of masking. I think it is, you know, the biggest benefit is that they they block big droplets. So if you're infected, it's really blocking you from contaminating the environment around you. You know, it may be, it's probably slightly less effective, you know, if you're, you know, if you're, depending again on the kind of mask, if, if you're not infected and you're wearing a mask to protect you, um, the benefits are again going to be against kind of those big droplets that m- might be in the air. You know, I think that there's enough data out there that shows that they have some benefit. It may not be a hundred percent, but even if it's, you know, 30 or 40% reduction in risk, which is the low end of what I've seen from studies, if you add that to the other things that people do, like spacing, if you're at the supermarket and washing your hands and, you know, not going out when you don't need to, I think it's the added benefit of all of those things. You know, I think definitely we want to save the n95s and the surgical masks for the healthcare systems that are going to continue to need them i think you know basic cotton that you can i mean the key thing is you want to wash you know the mask will become contaminated and dirty and you know you're going to touch it and so you want to have something that you can wash in hot water you know once a day at the end of use or wash after it gets contaminated so i think you know and and from what i've read as well cotton is probably the best material. And also you can wash it really easily. But I think any, you know, any covering is, is helpful. I mean, when I'm in the hospital, I wear a surgical mask, but when I'm out and about, I just have a kind of a neck guard and I keep it down when no one is around and I pull it, you know, like if I'm out walking, I think if no one is around, you don't need to have it up, but it's just something that I can, um, it's something that I can pull up. um, And, you know, it's, it's, it's easy because it's, you know, easy to wash. And so I do think that it's an important part of our armamentarium against this virus. And, you know, I, I really hope people will continue to respect the, um, the policies around masking.
0: Me too. How's everybody doing with their health? I'm really trying to be a little more diligent about taking care of my own because we're home, it's easier to be more sedentary, and it can be really easy to let hours in the day go by while we're all working from home without drinking any water. I don't know about you guys, but this is a serious problem for me. I'm dehydrated all the time, and liquid IV has changed the game for me. It is an easy, healthy solution for dehydration. One stick of liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates you faster and more efficiently than water alone because each serving provides as much hydration as two to three bottles of water plus vitamins C, B3, B5, B6, and B12. Those are vitamins that are excellent for your immunity. They keep us healthy and they help our bodies fight against infections, which feels especially important right now. And just so you know, it's more vitamin C than you would get in an orange and as much potassium as you would get in a banana. So let's boost our hydration. Let's boost our immunity and let's change the world. Liquid IV is responding to the COVID-19 crisis right now by donating more than 2 million servings in response to the pandemic. Products are being donated to hospitals, to first responders, to food banks, to veterans, and to our active military. And since daily hydration occurs in three out of four people, everyone on the front lines of this fight needs the support. I'm super proud to have Liquid IV as a sponsor on this podcast, I'm really excited about the ways they're giving back to our frontline workers. And I'm excited about the way they're making me feel healthier and more hydrated. And I would love for you all to feel the same. If you want to be better hydrated, Liquid IV is available nationwide at Target, Whole Foods, and Costco. Or you can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code WIP at checkout. That's 25% off anything you order when you use our promo code for our listeners, WIP, at liquidiv.com. Get better hydration today and give back to our frontline healthcare workers at liquidiv.com, promo code WIP. All right, Whip Smarties, I am really excited to welcome a new sponsor to the Work in Progress fold. The team at Vitruvi is a team that I love both personally and for what they make. They create beautiful diffusers and non-toxic essential oils to naturally and safely scent your space. Unlike most diffusers, Vitruvi diffusers are crafted using the highest quality porcelain, and they double as sophisticated pieces of decor, you know I'm all about the home decor. So having something that elevates my space but looks good doing it is incredibly important to me. They blend unique aromas to help you set any mood. They have a scent that I love called Velvet, which is a blend that smells like a musky French perfume. They've got one called Retreat, which smells tropical and fancy. And honestly, who doesn't want to be emotionally transported to a tropical destination right now? All Vitruvi diffusers come with free shipping and a one-year warranty, and the team at Vitruvi is giving my listeners 20% off your first order with the code WORKINPROGRESS. Visit vitruvi.com and use the code WORKINPROGRESS for 20% off your first order today. That's vitruvi, V-I-T-R-U-V-I dot com, In Progress. Enjoy. I am curious because especially when we talk about viral loads and how this thing spreads and how we do need to attack it on multiple fronts to keep it at bay, one of the other things that I've seen a lot of confusion around is can people who've had COVID-19 catch it again? Do you guys have any kind of Reliable hunches about that is—is is there data that's making that clear yet, or, or are we still unsure?
1: Yeah. So, um, so the answer is we're still unsure. Um, so, going back to the testing question, so I, I talked about the PCR test. That's a direct test for the virus itself. The other kind of test we have is what's called the antibody test, and that's a test that should really be reserved for people who think they've had COVID. You know, and even then. Debatable whether people need to get it, but if they want to get tested, it should really only be if you really think you have the disease, and then it shows that you have, um, you know, an antibody against the disease, and the antibody that generally protects people against reinfections called IgG type G, as in good. And so, what we don't know is even if you go get an antibody test, and and I say, oh, Sophia, your antibody's positive, that means you've had it. I can't tell you right now that that means you're immune to reinfection. In most cases for similar viruses, antibody does confer protection for some period of time. So if you ask me my hunch, I think that likely it will end up being, there will be some protective antibody that would protect people, whether that's for one year or two years or five years, we don't know the duration. And we, we can't say for sure that, it is. So even if you got the antibody test and I told you, you were antibody positive, meaning you'd had COVID, I would still tell you, you know, act as if you're still at risk because we just don't know. So it shouldn't change your behavior, but, you know, ideally it will be protective immunity and that will really help us out in terms of the more people who have protective immunity, the less able the virus will be to be transmitted from person to person
0: yeah i've 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 heard questions out there where people are saying, Well, maybe once we know who has antibodies, people with antibodies can go back to work, and that feels like a no just as a layperson because to your point, we don't know if antibodies mean immunity in this case, in the case of covid so would you Say that that is true that that antibodies don't mean you can go back to work. Yeah,
1: I mean, not with the data we have right now. We just don't know. So, so I know that I've read some other countries are kind of treating a positive antibody test like an immunity card or immunity pass, and like if you you know you get a green card to have with you and you get to show it and be out and about. Like people are really taking this to like sort of extremes. And I don't know if they're implementing these policies, but discussion of these policies. And I just don't think we know enough to be to, to be recommending anything like that. Um, so I think that our own policies in this country and in the state of California should be, you know, the same for everyone, regardless of whether you've had it before or not had it. Um, but I am hopeful that having had it will end up being protective, and that will help all that will help all of us
0: as we're collecting data. Because to your point, the the thing that I find helpful, and, and I get that maybe it's repetitive, but repeating the information is clarifying, I think. We don't know what this stuff means because it hasn't existed long enough for us to have meaningful data, studies, proof of really anything yet. Do antibodies, while we don't know if they provide any kind of immunity, do antibodies play a role in vaccine development, or are those completely separate?
1: Um, no, it's related I and mean, what we're trying to do with vaccines are mimic an infection with the virus without giving people the virus and develop the type of you know antibody that is protective against infection or the type of, antibody isn't the best word because it's actually a, a whole immune response that may involve antibodies. So we're trying to mimic infection to, to mimic, to, to create the types of cells that, and, and responses that would protect you if you actually encountered the virus. So it's bigger than just producing like that one IgG. It's a whole coordinated response. The only way your body produces antibody is actually through a coordinated interplay between multiple different pieces of the immune system. So, Mm -hmm. so you, you're basically trying to get the immune system to do that. And so then if it encounters that virus, it it's like, I, I've seen that before and I know how to fight it. And then those that machinery gets turned on and then you're, you know, you don't get sick.
0: I read something in the in the New York Times last Sunday. There was a whole section on COVID and you know, research that's coming out about how we move forward and how we find vaccines. And they were talking about looking at some older vaccines, some things that were developed in the 1920s. They were talking about some of the research around finding the vaccine for polio and these other diseases that we've been able to essentially eradicate. Although, unfortunately, this conspiracy theory stuff uh, in in the whole anti-vax world has reared its very ugly head. And for whatever reason, uh, it hasn't gone away, even after well over a year ago, it was confirmed that a lot of the accounts that were boosting anti-vaccination content were actually the same Russian troll farms and Macedonian uh, bot farms that had made the election so contentious in 2016, which I found to be very upsetting. I was like, cool, can we just trust the doctors, please? And maybe not internet conspiracy theories. So we, we are seeing resurgences of things like the measles, which we just shouldn't but i am curious again because you work in the in the field are you hopeful that some of those older those older vaccines that we have you know in our medical banks essentially could could lead to a treatment for covid
1: Yeah. I mean, the vaccine development thing is is really fascinating to me. It's actually, what I find interesting is not, I think we've mostly had very similar ways of approaching vaccines using either like, you know, pieces of the virus or modified versions of the virus. And that's how most of our vaccines have been developed. But what's fascinating to me is that with COVID, people are really looking at novel vaccines that we've never used before. And that to me is actually the more interesting. Like I kind of wonder, and I, I don't know, is COVID going to be like our first mRNA vaccine, which is a whole novel type of vaccine that we've never used? Um, and because there's so much effort going into this, and so many simultaneously, so many people are 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 studying vaccines and studying these different types of vaccines, that I almost wonder if. We're going to actually end up with a novel vaccine type that we've never before used. And of course, you know, vaccine development, one of the reasons it's so slow is because you have to do a lot of safety studies up front. And so, you know, I have faith that. Any vaccine development process will not shortchange the safety, so I think that is is if you know that's what's kind of going to slow us down. But you know, hopefully, if these get through that safety phase and get into larger clinical trials that look at efficacy um, or the you know effectiveness of the vaccine, you know, it'll be really interesting.
0: Knowing what you do about vaccine development and and to the point you just raised, the rigorous safety protocols that have to go in place before something can be put to market to keep human beings healthier is there anything that you would offer to anyone who's like maybe read some sort of crazy conspiracy about how vaccines are bad for us online is is there is there a way to put that
1: nonsense to bed if i knew that uh measles would be eradicated um I just don't know. I don't know how to reassure people. I think that you know, getting information from trusted sources and really trying to understand, you know, even though data is very clinical, I think there's a lot of good resources that that talk about vaccines in lay language, you know, talk to your doctors or other doctors because unfortunately some some doctors contribute to this problem, not that many, but yeah, I, I don't know what to say to people. I think that it's it's a tough problem and I don't know if it's ever gonna go away. And, you know, I think we rely heavily on what we call herd immunity, that if we can get enough of the population to take up a vaccine, then we can protect those who don't want to vaccinate. But when you see pockets of large communities that don't want to vaccinate, which now we do see, which is why we're seeing more measles outbreaks in this country in particular, we lose that that benefit of herd immunity. So You know, my my hope would be that people will have, you know, have trust in the process and and will be willing to to get vaccinated when the time comes.
0: Where would you recommend people get accurate information? Where do you get your guidance and your information?
1: Yeah, I mean that's hard because I read a lot of the primary literature, which is really hard for people to understand if they don't have Most of
0: us can't handle a medical journal in the way that you can. Yeah, that feel, that's fair. That's fair.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that, um, you know, I tried th- there's there's f- uh, some good sources and I can send you links for your audience, you know, just on um, different places.
0: That would be great
1: you know, I think, you know, I used to say, well, you know, a lot of the lay news offers really good information, but now there's news sources that are completely unreliable. You know, I think that in this day and age, it's it's hard to tease through the volume of information and the reliability of different sources. And I think discussing these things with you know, physicians, nurses, you know, the the care providers that are there to take care of you and provide primary health care is probably one of the best places where people should be getting information because it is really complicated to know what new sources to trust and like you said, like where things where things are coming from.
0: Well, and and even to something that you mentioned earlier, you know, you talk about watching Dr. Fauci, who I know you've previously worked with. And, and knowing that he's not really saying or allowed to say everything. So how do you, how do you think the public is, is being educated by the people who are leading, you know, as, as a person who knows him, how do you think he's handling this?
1: Yeah, I don't know him personally. I have had the pleasure of, you know, being in the same room with him and hearing him speak at our our meetings and things. But, you know, it, it is hard when... The leadership of our country is giving a lot of misinformation. I I do think that it seems like, you know, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, the two sort of faces of this, which are faces well known to me because um, Debbie Burks has been running the global HIV program uh, for many years, Um, and Dr. Fauci has been running the um, NIH infectious disease called NIAID for as long as I've been in medicine. I think they're very good at at inserting and giving messages that are simple and clear and make sense. And, you know, trying to counter when, when other uh, confusing messages are coming through. So I see them doing the best they can. um, And I think, you know, listening to the sound bites that come from them or reading interviews with them or reading information like um, that they've written, you know, is a, is a good way to hear their true voice. And uh, hopefully they'll be allowed to continue to, to do some of that media. I think it's been cut back a little bit, but
0: mm-hmm. does that is that disconcerting for you as a person who works in healthcare to see the scientists like Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks have their voices kind of taken from them?
1: It's shocking to me. Like I, it's as surreal as any of the rest of this that there's kind of a a leadership void in, in this, you know, that the people that I would want to be doing most of the speaking and representing, you know, the voice of the CDC is, is very quiet and the voices of, of others is feels very controlled and it's as surreal and upsetting as any of the rest of it to me. But I, but I try to, I try to realize that I think that, you know, they're incredibly valuable to this effort. And I think they're doing the best they can to balance, you know, being able to still be present and have influence and and help us all and, you know, kind of remain in their, in their roles and being given, you know, being given a voice by the White House, I think is important that they have been given a voice. And so I see them doing everything they can to maintain that and not be pushed aside to the extent possible. So I, I can appreciate what an incredibly difficult balancing act this must be for them and how incredibly difficult. And I hope one of them writes a book about it someday so I can read all the details because I'm very curious to know like what's going on behind closed doors.
0: (laughs) Same, so am I. And and I, I can't imagine being a reputable doctor like either of those two and then having to listen to the president of the United States lie to people. And that feels like a crazy thing for me to say. But then I watch the news and... I see him say it's not a big deal. I see him say it's going to disappear. I see him say that this is essentially the flu. I see him say that people should be taking these drugs that are untested and unproven for COVID and also causing things like pulmonary embolisms and and heart attacks. And I'm I'm just like, "Oh my god, what must it be like to be the doctor who has to stand next to this guy who's literally endangering the lives of Americans?" With the nonsense that he's saying, I I can't imagine the the amount of purpose you must be able to identify in remaining and trying to do your best and, and be able to sort of stand there with a with a straight face. It's it's a it's a level of poise I do not have.
1: Yeah, I me neither. I really have just the greatest respect for them and appreciate what they're doing and so happy that we have them there and can look to them being, you know, up on the stage or off on the side. And I really hope we get a book one day from one of them. If Same. not both of them.
0: <laughs> I'm, ready. I'm ready for the book. As you look at their roles, as you, as you look at, you know, I think, I think about the oath that all of you take as doctors, you know, to, to uphold medicine and, and to work to protect human life. And you spoke to this a little bit before, that that on the clinical research side, there's this global push. What an inspiring thing it is to see every scientist in the world dedicated to the same problem. Do you think that going forward, this experience and this kind of need for teamwork will Change the medical community will change the research community, the the way that everyone communicates and works together.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I do, I do. I think we've really learned a lot about how to do things efficiently, how to come together, you know, interdisciplinary, cross disciplinary, you know, hopefully how to be more efficient with some of the things that really slow down research. HIV has always been a real, you know, we call it team science because we always, you know, are thinking about having behavioral scientists, and you know, we we often have people with three or four different fields and expertise involved in in uh, in a leadership team. Um, so I think we our field has always been a little bit more. Used to function, you know, used to functioning that way. But I, I do think in terms of co- the COVID clinical trials, it's you know working together with um, you know infectious diseases and the pulmonary critical care doctors and the the kind of primary hospitalists and the you know the microbiologists. Like it, it's it's really pulled people together in ways that I think we haven't. And and that's true not just for research, but in terms of like clinical guidelines and case management you know, it's, and it's a really positive thing. And I think we can see that we benefit so much by, you know, having all those voices at the table. So I do think there's going to be a lot of really important lessons learned that will come out of us that will will change, not just maybe the way we approach some of our clinical care, but also our approach to research.
0: When you think about those potential changes and, and the impact that could happen in the medical community. If the medical community is one of the microcosms of the macrocosm of the globe, do you see similar potential for change to society for the way that we interact with each other? Or, or do you think that there, those are, those things are different?
1: Um, I mean, I think one thing that this has, I think we've always known, particularly in infectious diseases, that we are a global village and, you know, it's kind of cliche, but I think this has really brought home that, you know, nobody in this world can do anything, you know, that we are so tightly interconnected now with the way travel has become so easy Um, and in regard to sort of global warming and you know, climate change and the interplay between that and infectious diseases and human health. And I I think, I hope that, I think there's always been a push for that and a recognition of that, but I, you know, there's no going back. Like this has happened and hopefully we'll get a handle on it in a few years, vaccine and life will return to some semblance of normal. But in my mind, I I never as an ID doctor thought this would happen. I never expected to face something like this in my career, even though I've read about all the other pandemics and things that have happened over time. And now I operate in a world where I'm like, okay, we have this now I wonder what's next, you know, and that we should all be poised to really think that there could be another one coming and we can't become complacent after this one goes away or tapers down or whether, you know, if there's an effective vaccine, you know, these, you know, emerging infectious disease programs and, you know, our ability to collaborate and connect across the globe to monitor disease outbreaks and react in really efficient ways. You know, I think, we have to be able to do that to address the next one.
0: Yeah. Because there will be a next one.
1: Yeah. I hope not, but I'm afraid. So I mean,
0: well, my, my hope is that this can change our preparedness for the eventual next one. And, and perhaps that to your point, if, if it's an MRNA vaccine or, or, or whatever incredible sort of medical advancement comes out of this, that, that it actually helps protect us against whatever the next incidence of, of a highly infectious disease is. We can hope.
1: Yes, we can hope. Is
0: there a way that listeners that, that those of us who don't work in the medical community can be supporting healthcare workers and, and frontline workers right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think it's really happening all over the world. You know, um, just the beautiful messages and different ways that people are supporting each other. You know, I think uh, I've really my friends and neighbors have been so amazing. Like, you know, do you need groceries? Do you need you know just little things that 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 have are so nice and um, helpful. And you know, I think that um, fortunately we are hopefully in a good place here in LA. And, you know, I think things are getting better in New York. Um, I do think that particularly in places like New York and, uh, other places where the impact of this was felt so heavily, I worry about the mental health of those healthcare workers who, you know, in the subsequent months to years have to sort of process what happened. You know, I think in my own community, we've talked about that and, you know, I think most people feel like we averted a crisis and we never got super overwhelmed and we had good systems in place. But I think just continued attention to the mental health of, of healthcare workers who were in the worst of it, because I think it's something that is going to, you know, stay with them. And, and we'll, you know, we're going to continue to see this. And And the other thing I would say more than anything else is that Please, 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 you know, be careful and follow your local policies around, you know, protecting each other, masking, sheltering at home, if that's what you're under. Because it's, you're not just protecting yourself and your family and your friends. But if we do overwhelm our healthcare system, again, you know, it is the healthcare workers. And it's not just the doctors and nurses, it's the people who sit at the front desk and answer the phone, the people who deliver food. I mean, it's a, huge community of people that have to be in a hospital every day to make a hospital function. And it's those people who, you know, are really the ones who who are going to take the brunt of another surge. And I think we all have to do our part to to keep our hospital system, you know, below capacity and prevent that from happening. And I think if we can continuously prevent that from happening, then we can continue to provide really high quality health care because we don't overwhelm the doctors. And we can continue to have enough PPE and we can keep everyone, you know, our healthcare workers protected and healthy. So I think, you know, people maybe don't think about how their individual behavior could have that downstream potential impact on the health system.
0: Yeah, that's really, really important. Thank you so much. And, and hopefully that is information that arms listeners when, you know... They're having a debate with someone who doesn't understand the importance of these measures. That I think that really helps to put it in perspective. So my favorite question to ask everyone who joins me on the podcast, as you know it's called work in progress. And I wonder right now, when you hear the phrase, what comes to mind as a work in
1: progress in your life? Oh wow. I didn't know that was your favorite question. I would have been <laughs> thought about it. <laughs> I think for me personally, my work in progress that I'm continually facing is just how to balance my life and be able to um, compartmentalize work a little bit and try to. I, I very much take work home with me, and now I work from home when I'm not at work. <laughs> and so, in the COVID era, I think it's become so much harder to have boundaries and stay balanced and and you know you know, just, just feel sort of sane and normal. And so um, really trying to work on how I can compartmentalize a little bit and step away from the stress and anxiety of, of COVID and other work things to, you know, recenter. Um, and I try to practice my gratitudes as much as I can, you know, so grateful or working in a community that is so incredible for all the brilliant people and how hard they're all working to address this, you know, for my own health and that my family has remained healthy. So I find practicing gratitude is really good for that. Um, and, and so I try to work on that and practice a little gratitude every day. Mm, I
0: love that. Same. And I, I'm, I'm really finding that figuring out what to be grateful for in the midst of this is a game changer.
1: Yeah, it's it's a very helpful framework. I recommend it for everybody. A little, little practicing of gratitudes daily, one minute even. I love that. Yeah,
0: Risa, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Cloud 10 and Brilliant Anatomy. Powered by Simplecast. <laughs>